first Bible reading comes from uh, the book of Proverbs, chapter 25, verse 15. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Our second reading comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him cancelled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found out he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you, unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. The final reading comes from the the Gospel according to John, chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This morning we're completing the series we've had on unfashionable Christian virtues, and there's been a bit of a gap in between the third and the fourth talks, but that's okay, it's good to keep you in waiting. And today we're talking about forbearance. We talked about frankness, steadfastness, restraint, and now forbearance. It's a word I'm sure you use every day. Forbearance, one of those very modern words, not. Um, It's actually a very old-fashioned word. What does it mean? It's closely related to mercy or lenience. Uh, It's about patience. It's about refusing to pass judgment on other people. It's the virtue of suspending your hostility towards another person. It's not assuming that you understand why somebody's behaving the way they're behaving. 
you give them the benefit of the doubt. In this sense, forbearance is really closely related to forgiveness. It's not exactly the same as forgiveness. It's different to forgiveness. But at the very least, if you understand forgiveness and how you're forgiven, then you will understand forbearance and you will live out forbearance. I will certainly be arguing this morning that the extent to which you know how much God has forgiven you is the extent to which you will show forbearance on other people, with other people. Forbearance is a bit um, more than tolerance. It's, it's not just putting up with people. It's not just coping with other people. Because forbearance longs for community. Forbearance is about cultivating the conditions in which community is possible. And it's certainly about radical and disciplined patience. It's about being patient and able to forgive someone and to control yourself in a difficult situation. The, The literal meaning of forbearance is holding back. And it's used in banking. So to forego foreclosure, the lender and the borrower can make an agreement called forbearance. Borrowers are able to apply for deferment and forbearance benefits, as long as these have not been exhausted during the default period. So the lender shows significant patience with the borrower in terms of how much money they owe them. But forbearance in what we're talking about is more to do with human relationships and relating to each other in love, persisting with one another, specifically when the other person's difficult. Thomas Aquinas says, there can be no virtue without love. And this is so obvious with regard to the virtue of forbearance. And in some ways we can think about the talk today as part two of the talk from last week. It was a nice coincidence that when Wes Hill spoke about spiritual friendship, and you can listen to that on on the podcast online, um, he made the point that through intentional Christian relationships with a few people, you can learn how to relate to the whole group of the community, your church. Um, and so you need to develop this kind of forbearance with the close people in your life, with the family, and you know it so well from your brothers and sisters or your flatmate, but, but um, you also need to do it with people that you're not in immediate contact with. Maybe you're associated with them just through circumstance, like maybe at work or at school or at church. Jesus said to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And Jesus' new command to his followers to love each other as he had loved them will be the mark of who they are. This is not a new idea from Jesus. Um, Love within the community was around in in uh, the earlier Hebrew communities. In, uh, you can read about first century rabbis, of contemporaries of Jesus saying the same thing. Um, but what was new was Jesus' command for his disciples to love one another as he had loved them, in a kind of Jesus kind of way, laying down their lives. This rule of self-sacrificial, self-giving, selfless love, a unique quality of love inspired by Jesus' own love for the disciples, will serve as the foundational value um, for what we're talking about. The foundational principle for the Christian community 
but also in what we're talking about for forbearance. Listen to Jesus' famous words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So if you're a disciple of Jesus and you only love people that are like you, then you're actually not really living out what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Anyone can do that, says Jesus. Forbearance is about how you lovingly treat those who are not like you, who are difficult, who owe you, perhaps, or who are inconvenient or who have smelly breath or who just are awkward or who just don't, don't say much in the conversation or who talk too much, have loud voices, close talkers, as Seinfeld, you know those people Seinfeld used to talk about, the close talker. Now, the parable that we had from the un- about the unmerciful servant is not about forbearance directly, but it gives us this foundation for the how and the why of forbearance, how we should cultivate forbearance in our community. So let's have a look at the, 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 the um, passage, um, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me up to seven times? Now, this question comes out of Jewish teaching, which is that you only had to give, forgive maybe two or three times to, to show that you have a forgiving spirit. The rabbis taught that if a person is a repeat offender, they may not be really a repenter at all. They might, might not really be sorry for their sins against you. And one rabbi says, If a man commits a transgression, the first, the second, and third time he is forgiven, the fourth time he is not. So Peter's question is coming out of that kind of context, uh, wondering how many times you need to forgive to show that you really are a forgiving kind of person. His offer is to forgive seven times, which is way above what the rabbi is saying. So Peter's probably thinking, I'm going to show Jesus how good I am here. But he wonders whether maybe even seven isn't enough. And Jesus' astonishing response is that while seven seems gracious and generous, actually in Jesus' standards, it's not. In fact, Peter must forgive countless times. I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or seven times 70, or however you want to translate it. Jesus seems to be saying that really the number doesn't actually matter. 77, 7, 777, it doesn't really matter. They're just to keep forgiving, keep forgiving. The reason for such an unheard of thought is given in the parable that we get next. Peter should go on forgiving because of the reality of his own forgiveness that he's received from from God. So let's have a look at that. Jesus tells Peter and the disciples what forgiveness looks like for people who have encountered the kingdom of God. In the kingdom, it's like having a king who wanted to settle all the financial accounts with his servants. This is how we begin. Let's look at the first servant, verse 24 and 25. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. 
or 10,000 talents, your translation might have, since he was not able to have the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Now, to settle accounts sounds pretty serious. There is a worrying tone of judgment about what the king's doing. We've just got to settle the accounts, everyone. And this first servant owes 10,000 bags of gold or 10,000 talents, however you want to translate it. The point is, this is an incomprehensible amount of money. If, you know, he's up to his eyeballs in debt. I once heard this um, documentary on um, Jared Kushner, who's President Trump's son-in-law, and his company um, famously bought and paid the most amount of money for any building in Manhattan and in their history. And this was in 2007. They paid about, what was it, um, $1.8 billion for 666 Fifth Avenue. I know you, you would never come up with that address, would you? But that's the, that's the address of the building, 666 Fifth Avenue. And they bought it for $1.8 billion in 2007. They put $50 million down on deposit, and that's all they had, and they borrowed the rest. And then there was a financial crisis, and half the companies in the building went bankrupt and closed or left. So they were there with this huge amount of debt, mortgaged up to their eyeballs, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about 10,000 bags of gold. You know, he's over-leveraged, and you don't want to be in that situation. You owe big time, huge, as his father-in-law would say. In fact, the servant really didn't owe 10,000 bags of gold. It's, it's just more than that. It's just it's so much. It's unspecific. It's, you can't even calculate it. And he might have been some kind of governor, you know, who collected all the taxes and then gambled it away or wasted on partying and then couldn't pay it back. Who knows how he got into that kind of debt. The man can't pay up, so he and his family are to be sold into slavery to repay the debt. And that's one of the common practices that was done at the time. This is what they used to do in the ancient world. Can you imagine meeting with your local Westpac bank manager? We can't, we can't pay back the house. All right, then. So what I want you to do is um, come in with your family and your children, and we've got a master out the back who's going to take you, and you're going to be their slave, and your children will go with the other master, and they'll be slaves to them for the rest of their life. All right? That's what we're talking about here. Full-on situation. Verse 26. At this time, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. And I will pay back everything. But he's not facing reality. He's never going to pay back that debt. You you don't pay back 10,000 bags of gold. Now, in an unexpected turn, the king feels sorry for him and does something highly unusual. The king cancels the debt and releases him, says in verse 27. And at this point in the story, all the people listening to Jesus would have remembered his words about forgiveness that introduced a parable. Forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. This first bit of the parable is an illustration of what our relationship is like with God. We owe God big time. We can't pay back what we owe God because of the sins that we have committed. They're uncalculable. Is that a word? Uncalculatable. That's better. We can't work out how many sins we have committed. 
Even if you spend, you know, five minutes, you know, when you have the confession in church and there's the silent time and you think of those things, you still can't think of everything. And then God says, I forgive you because of what my son has done on the cross. Now, we move to the scene of, of a second servant. Verse 28. The, the first servant who owed the king big time and, and then had his debt cancelled, then that guy finds a second servant who owes him 100 silver coins or 100 denarii, which in modern terms is about $4,000. All right, so we're not really comparing $4,000, I mean, we are, to 10,000 bags of gold. I mean, it's just, it's not even in the same league, is it? It's minuscule. But the one who has been forgiven so much does not respond with the same pity, but rather the opposite. Look at verse 28b. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me. What does the second servant do? He responds in the exact same way as the first servant did. Verse 29. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. So you would think the first servant would say, I know. I've been shown what it is to forgive and the beauty of grace and what that was to transform our lives. So I'll do the same thing to you. And it's only $4,000. It's nothing. But instead, what does he do? He sells him and throws him into prison until he could pay him back the four grand, which was impossible for him. So because we're insecure, perhaps we have a, a low self-esteem or been abused by others, this causes us to want to protect ourselves from being hurt over and over again. So we find the idea of forgiving other people really difficult to take. We don't want to be used. We want to get even with other people, with, with society, we don't want to be like pushed down. We, we, we don't want to feel like we're missing out. But what Jesus shows us is that when we experience God's unqualified forgiveness, it will influence all that we are and who we are. It will impact all of our relationships. Something's gone wrong with this first servant. He's, he's perhaps not been impacted by what's happened to him. Look at verse uh, 31. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. It says they were outraged, or more precisely, they were deeply grieved. They had deep sorrow in their heart when they saw this injustice of how, what the first servant had done to the second servant. And this is what you feel when you witness a great injustice. It gives you a sick feeling in your stomach. And this is how God feels too. He gets angry. Look at verse 32. Then the master called the servant in, the first servant. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. And then shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had had on you? He's wicked, says the king. The mercy, grace, and radical generosity of the master toward the first servant should have impacted his life, but it didn't. Instead, he is wicked and he has taken advantage of the master's grace. Now the king is going to punish him worse in a way that he was originally meant to be punished. 
the king hands him over to the torturers, it says in verse 34. They were the guards in the jails that had the extra job of inflicting torture on the prisoners. He'll never be able to repay back his debt, and so he's going to remain being punished forever. This is an image of hell. It's a horrific image of hell. So what's the point of the parable? Look at verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So this takes us to the the centre of what the kingdom of God's all about. If you have said yes to Jesus, you have experienced the radical mercy of Jesus, the overflowing grace of God. Your heart has been transformed. This is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. You will naturally give out to others the same mercy and forgiveness that you have received from God. Your words and your actions will be filled with mercy. Jesus said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Because when the seed falls on the good ground, on the good soil, it produces a crop. 160 or 30 times what was sown. The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. If you've been radically forgiven by Jesus, you will then go on and radically forgive others. In contrast, a person who has not really experienced God's grace and mercy will not experience this and, and, and have, have, have not experienced his forgiveness, will not go on and show that to others. That person will be like the first servant. They'll accept all the personal benefits, but it will only be superficial. It will not penetrate a hard heart to produce transformation. And that person will therefore experience eternal condemnation. So are the disciples powerless? Either they've been transformed by the Spirit of God, or they haven't. Well, they're not powerless. They have a right response. They should respond in the opposite way to the first servant, shouldn't they? Jesus' disciples must be forgiving to others, for through God's grace and mercy they have experienced his forgiveness. The whole identity of Peter and the other disciples is radically shaped by a truth that will determine the course of their lives. The more they see Jesus' life and ministry unfold as he goes to the cross and resurrects again, the tomb, coming out of the tomb, the more they'll be transformed from the inside out. This will profoundly shape their community and their calling. This will change how they relate to each other. And the Apostle Peter will write many years later in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation is calling the church, talking to the church, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. Peter understood this posture of, of what it meant to be forgiven and to show mercy and to have forbearance with each other Think about his own calling. So on the beach, when, Je- when after he'd sinned against Jesus and denied him three times, and Jesus confronts him and asks him, do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, yes, I do love you. But do you really love me? Yes, I do love you. Do you really love me? Yes, I do love you. Then Jesus calls him to his ministry for the rest of his life, and he says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. This is an image of forbearance. 
when you're feeding a sheep, you don't get anything back. The sheep just wander around, you know, and they sometimes are annoying and you have to chase after them. The ultimate image of forbearance that comes out of a posture of having been forgiven. The ability to be patient with one another, to be forgiving of one another, and show love to one another in a radical way over a long time. This comes out of the posture that you have as a forgiven person, a posture of grace and mercy. When you know in your heart the significance of what God has done for you in Jesus, this leads you to look at others around you and see them as God sees you. God sees you as somebody he loves despite your brokenness. This will make you more likely to want to love and forgive other people. Not just once, not just twice, not just three times, but over and over again. Now there's a qualifier that I I need to make about what forgiveness actually is and what forbearance actually is and what it isn't. A few weeks ago, uh, the staff team went and heard a speaker, Eleanor Stump. She's a Catholic theologian, American, and she spoke on forgiveness and guilt. And she explained that love, love requires two interconnected to desires. Love requires the desire for the good of the beloved. And also, the second thing is, is that love requires the desire for union with the beloved. So if you, if you desire the good of a person, and if you desire to be around that person, to be with that person, that is what love is. They're necessary and sufficient for morally appropriate forgiveness as well. If you, if you really want to be a forgiving person to another person, you're going to want what's best for them, and you're also going to want to be able to be united with them, if you can, if that's possible. There's no forgiveness without the desire for union with the wrongdoer. And, 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 and there's no forgiveness without desire for the, that that person would um, um, have without desire for the good in that person. Now, what we've got to think about is the situation where maybe reconciliation's a very difficult or maybe impossible thing. Let's just say you're in the impossible situation or the terrible situation of being abused by your husband. Let's just consider that situation, that horrible situation. Jesus' teaching on forgiveness and forbearance does not mean that you just quietly forgive over and over over again your husband, for, while he's abusing you. No, if you are being abused, you need to get to safety. That's, that's the first thing. And, and being a loving person towards an abusive husband might mean telling someone, telling a friend, telling the police. It might involve that, to get help for yourself, to get help for him, to protect your children, for that matter. Forgiveness does not mean putting up with abuse. You can love someone and still tell the police of what's happening. It's like the mother who loves her son, her son who keeps using ice and dealing ice to his friends and hurting himself and hurting other people. The mother can still love her son, wants what's best for him, ultimately want union with him and yet still tell the police. It's called tough love and it's really difficult and I... I understand how, how hard that would be. So the f- virtue of forbearance, it doesn't mean putting up with abuse. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you have to be hurt. P- 
putting that aside, for most of the time, for most of us, we will be required to exercise the virtue of forbearance in our daily lives, at church, in our family, at work and at school. And I've got um, for you three ways you can do that in application. The first way you can apply forbearance is to learn to go with the other person's flow. Go with the flow with another person. So the art of forbearance is largely about looking not to your own needs or to your own methods or to your own life rhythm, but it's to be focused on the other person's rhythm. So if you look at the front cover of the booklet, you'll see the two pictures of Thomas the Tank. I think there might be, is that Gordon or Edward? I don't know. I'm not a Thomas expert anymore. But it's the idea of, you know, the train just going along with the other train. Often if you watch the Thomas the Tank show or read the books, one of the trains is letting down the other trains. And forbearance is just keeping on going with, with, with the other train, even if they're, you know, going at their pace. A really great musician will learn to adjust to the musicians around them. They won't dominate. And that's what forbearance requires. It's the same in Christian community. Forbearance is learning to be able to go along with any person, regardless of their personality or temperament. If you only live according to your own likes and dislikes, you will never uh, display the virtue of forbearance. To be Christ-like is to learn to walk at the speed of your neighbour. If they walk quickly, you walk quickly. If they walk slowly, you walk slowly. If they sit down, you sit down. If they stand up, you stand up. Forbearance is radical empathy and selflessness. One thing I try and do with people who I don't naturally resonate with or who I find a bit challenging is to try and find the topic of conversation that they love to talk about. So even if it's stuff that I have no idea about, Formula One cars or, you know, um, you know mountain bike riding or whether it's Chinese um, badminton teams or, I don't know, whatever topic lights the person's life up, I try and find that topic and then talk to them about that. And why is that important? Is that, is that just like being a politician? No, it's about valuing, valuing the other person. It's getting to know them. It's being with them. It's showing them love. It's about being a friend. It's easy to do when the other person's favourite topic is your favourite topic. That's not the kind of love that Jesus talks about. That would not be forbearance. So go with the other person's flow. Secondly, assume incompetency, not conspiracy. One of the biggest problems that gets in the way of Christian community and our ability to get along and to be patient with one another is that we often get offended by each other. One of the things that irritates me is people commenting on my looks. Um, When I was on staff at St Hilary's, they used to have this problem, the St Hilary's staff, of um, always talking about your looks. Um, I know it sounds very superficial. It wasn't everyone, just a few people. And I'd get comments about my haircut the clothes that I were wearing that particular day, even the size of my gut, which was a bit paunchier in the early days, I admit. And the worst offenders, I have to say, were some of the middle-aged women on the staff. They used to often make comments that if I were to say to them in reverse, I'd probably get the sack. Imagine if I said to a middle-aged woman, 
How's that gut growing today? Or, wow, that haircut's interesting. Wow. Huh. Anyway, this is where the virtue of forbearance had to kick in. I think... I think one or two times I might say, might have said to the person, I don't mind if you comment on my looks, if you don't mind me commenting on your looks. And then they'd stop. But most of the time I assumed incompetency, not conspiracy. To assume conspiracy would have been to tell myself that that person was trying to cut me down or that this is workplace politics or they're playing power games They're trying to discourage me because really they don't believe in my ministry. That's conspiracy thinking. When in actual fact, perhaps they just lack a self-awareness. This is where the parable of the unmerciful servant comes in. I, I need to remember to forgive 70 times 7. I need to remember what God has done for me in Christ in showing radical grace and forgiveness. And this changes my posture. It changes my posture from being offended and insecure to, to not just tolerating the comments, but learning to love the person who makes a silly comment, learning to be patient with them, finding out what's going on in their life. And often I find that when people make funny comments, maybe they're coming from, there's a, there's a reason that is actually a painful reason for them. And... Sometimes I, I try and talk to them or, or pray for them and I find their comments will dry up over time and actually you can learn to get along really well. So assume incompetency, not conspiracy. And thirdly, pray for people and especially for your enemies. Sometimes in your community group at church or at work or in your family, you have a person that you are just not getting along with. You avoid them. They drive you crazy. My suggestion is you pray for them. And you could even ask them what they would like to have prayed for. And think of Jesus, who is the ultimate image of forbearance. Nailed to the cross, bleeding and dying and having insults hurled at him, he prayed for them, Father, forgive them because they're incompetent. This is not a conspiracy. (laughs) They don't know what they're doing. The thing is, in that scene... It is you and I who are the ones hurling insults at him and it is Jesus who is praying for your forgiveness and my forgiveness. He just knows that we just don't know what we're doing. We don't realise how bad we're being. And he says, please forgive them, Father, and he prays for them. I guarantee that if you pray for a person that's annoying you or irritating you, your heart will be changed towards them. And this is what makes for a flourishing Christ-like community. So go with the other person's flow, assume incompetency, not conspiracy, and pray for people, especially enemies. And let me close with these words of Paul from Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. In every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.